This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Joe D'Alessandro. You might not be able to place the name, but if you Google it, and if you're of a certain age, you'll recognize some of the most iconic images of the 20th century. Take the cover of the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. You know the one I mean. Joe says it's a close-up of him, or a certain part of him, in jeans. D'Alessandro also starred in many of Andy Warhol's films. In Flesh, he played a male hustler who Lou Reed later immortalized in his song, Take a Walk on the Wild Side, singing Little Joe Never Once Gave It Away. With his street mentality and pin-up boy looks, D'Alessandro quickly found both a gay and straight following. As a young man, he hadn't set his sights on being an erotic art film icon. He had much more humble aspirations. My dream was to own a pizza shop and, and make pizzas. I, that's what I started doing when I was like 14. I, I worked at a pizza shop. Where? Was this on Babylon? This was, Babylon? This, no, this was in Queens. Queens, right on Union Turnpike in Floral Park area. So... It was a nice neighborhood. It was Lorenzo's Pizza. And uh, I learned how to cook, not just pizza, but in these big pizza ovens. I learned how to take those pans and make steaks and make all sorts of food. Who taught you to cook? Uh, This Italian, his name was, there was Lorenzo, and there was uh, Sabatino, Sabatino, no, something like that. Can't remember. Long time ago, I was sure. just a youngster. And 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 when you were working with Lorenzo and Sabatino in Floral Park, what happened? Uh, what 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 detoured your pizza career? My juvenile delinquency. I uh, I was a little crook and went off doing some bad things and got myself sent away to uh, to a place. To where school. We, they sent yeah, you to school. Yeah, to learn how to chop down <laughs> trees and. 
I used to think those trees grew that way. I didn't know you had to prune them to make them. And I thought, you know, trees just grew with no branches at the bottom. But yeah. now you have to You got to fuss a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You got to cut all that shit off. So they sent you up there to, to prune? Prune trees and and make the forest look lovely. <laughs> <laughs> now, now when, you, when you were a kid, it was tough. You, uh, you had a tough childhood. Bouncing back and forth, your father. Well, I had made a promise to my father if he'd finally take me home to stay, live with him, that I'd behave. Because I grew up in uh, foster care. Well, basically only two families, but the first family was the the major part of my childhood was with that family. Was it a good experience with them? Yeah, it just. Uh, at a certain age, you just want to be with you know when you see your father once a month. Uh, and each each month you you go back to the to the other home, you just feel I don't know. I felt as a child that it, you know this is not where I need to be. I need it didn't to feel be, right. Yeah, I got tired of calling somebody who wasn't my mommy, mommy or or daddy that weren't my father. Were they kind to you, those two people? Uh, they said they they had their own two children. Uh, the first one was. I was brought to be his playmate, and the second one was a miracle baby. And so uh, we, uh, they used to tell me that, you know, that we were treated just like their own, you know, that there was, they showed no partiality between us. But there was, there was a, a, great, a great amount of difference in the way that uh, I grew up there. And their there own was a little partiality. There. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Oliver Twist. Well, I was told, you know, the stories of when I was a baby, how I, I came to be at that home. The people that wanted to take children would come to this window and look in on the kids and select from the window, like a puppy in the window. And they told me that I went to the window and said, will you be my mommy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of think that my kind of attitude was that there was a heavy set woman and I must have thought that meant food and she's eating well yeah take me uh, with you <laughs> yeah I'm why not go eat what you're eating you've been the puppy in the window that's been selected by people your whole life haven't you yep yep I mean, that's your how looks. it began, and that's how it it stayed. I never understood the the look thing because I didn't see it. Uh, but people took some nice pictures of me over the years, and that's not who and I saw. fell in love with you. Yeah, that's not who I saw. I saw somebody completely different. When you decided you wanted to go with your dad, where was your mom? She was out of the picture. Uh, yeah, she was completely out of the picture. And what'd your dad do for a living? He's an electronic engineer. Worked in Sperry Ran. It was a. Was he working on the island or in the city? In Mineola, that's Long Island, in sure. Nassau County. We moved from Brooklyn to uh, Babylon when I was in the third grade or second grade. Was it weird to be on the island coming from the city? Well, it was weird to moving back to the city. Well, Brooklyn, when we lived in Brooklyn, I, you know, that was a different, different thing because I was going to Catholic school there. And when we moved out to Long Island, I was going to a public school and... I didn't get hit anymore for not crossing my hands the right way, you know, so. So what were the circumstances under which the guy shot you and thought you had a piece on you? What happened? I was in a stolen vehicle, and I, uh... You stole the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So you were moving up in the world in the crook department. You things were going well. Well, it, was, it wasn't like I was selling cars or anything. It was just me uh, joyriding mostly and, and selling nice tires and bucket seats and shit. It was a hobby. It wasn't a yeah, career. If the stuff came off the car... I try to sell it, but you know, the people were older than me that were buying the shit, and they just usually took advantage of that. And if they were mean, they would just take it and not pay me. And another another pattern in your life. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing all the work and you're not getting paid. And then, so the guy, what happened? The guy shot you? Yeah, I was going through a tunnel and uh, didn't pay the toll at one end. When I came out at the other, they had a. Uh, blocked the street with officers standing with their guns pointed. So one hand went down to open the door, and when it came back up to put them up, they thought it, they said, you, we thought you were coming up with a gun. And how, how old were you then? I was 15. You're 15 years old, yeah. getting shot with NYPD? Yeah. My God. Doesn't matter what I did, it was juvenile delinquency. And uh, so... It was basically, you know, me making the decision on what place I was going to go to. You know, they gave me a choice of different places, and they showed me the brochures. And Camp Cass looked like a really lovely, <laughs> lovely tree-trimming place. place. Yeah. Where was that upstate? Yeah, up in the Cats near the Catskills. So it was a, it wasn't a bad place, but it was not Fresh a place that a, a an inner city kid could get around in very well, you know. How long were you there? I think I was there maybe four months. And then what happened? I decided I didn't like that place. Yeah, so no, so the... the it took the, off. How hard was that to do? To take it off It wasn't from, uh, difficult at all. It's for somebody that knew how to live in the woods and camp and stuff like that, which I kind of knew. Who told... Who taught you that? I went camping with friends when I lived in Long Island. We went out to... We had a state park near us. And with a lake and everything, and it was kind of nice. You pick up things you can use that are useful. You learn how to camp in the woods just in case you need to escape from a juvenile detention center. Well, you don't know that what's down the road. You, you know, it was just you were having fun when you went out and stayed out overnight. It wasn't it wasn't any planned camping trip. We didn't have tents or anything like that. We just went out and stayed out all night. Yeah. So when you get out of this place, you escape. You're on the lamb, so to speak, mm-hmm. from the place. How long are you doing that? How long does that last? Oh. Who finds you? Well, I decided that I was going to go to California. And uh, and so I did one more small thing. I borrowed money, basically, without them knowing about it. And uh, went out to California with this money doing a bus trip. And I took a friend with me. So I borrowed this money kind of permanently and it was enough to, uh, to go to California and buy a pair of cowboy boots in Texas and have to sell them back to the guy. How old were you when you arrived in California? Fifteen. So you're still 15 years old. Yeah. You're really packing a lot of excitement into this oh, yeah. 15th year, right? That's incredible. That was a good year. That was a big year <laughs> for you, man. That's a whole chapter in your book right there, 15. Yeah. And you arrived... That's when I started my modeling career. Well, I, I want to get to that because... Now, now, your dad is still in New York. Yeah. Do you stay in touch with him or you lose contact with him while you're spreading your wings out yeah, there? Yeah, we, we didn't stay in contact. You didn't? No. And Where'd you go? What town? L.A.? Eventually, I wound up in L.A. I'd gone to, to Texas and to Mexico. <laughs> I went and I uh, 
then came back out of Mexico, back to Texas, and hitched a ride. Was real kind of. I was lucky with hitching, you know. I, I got a ride all the way up to Los Angeles to the to the train station uh, where I got left off in L.A. and made contact with a with a nice guy <laughs> who took me back to his place, uh, you know. So it's foster care all over again. Yeah, and he lived in Watts, and it was a. Uh, I got there and I, you know, I'd heard this was the the slum area or the bad area, and I get there and I see these apartments with swimming pools and stuff. I say, "You got a swimming pool?" I say, "How could you say this is the slum area? You out of your mind? This is this is incredible." So when they found this modeling job for me to do, um, I thought, "Sure, I'll do that. It makes some money." When did it hit you as it does, like, these little girls go to pageants, you know, they're the, like the John Benet Ramsey thing, where they, and they realize the power they have. And when did you realize you had that power over people? Well, they, 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 just, they just like to look at you, and they don't want to stop looking at you all day long. Well, when did that hit you? Uh, I kind of, kind of knew that uh, people treated me nice because of the way I look. Just for showing up. Yeah. Did you, did you I keep... had a few people like that in New York that also were, when I went back there, right. that just were happy to have me come to dinner because I looked nice. I was a decoration. And then when you were in L.A., did you go with an agency and somebody repped you? No, there took... was this criminal-type guy. This was not any—this was, uh, you know, oh, you're so strong. Ooh, you're, you should do this—, this. Muscle modeling, you know, will show your muscles and everything. Did you work out a lot? No, I never worked out. You never worked out? Never. Your whole life? Ever. Oh, come on! Never. Are you kidding me? No. My God. Yeah. It's like you would drop but from I'd heaven. But I down a tree, you know, a lot yeah. of trees. Yeah, you, you, but, but with, like, your physical culture, if you will, you weren't a runner or a surfer or a, a ball player or, like, what did you, you did nothing to stay in shape? You didn't ever worked out? No. I mean, your your tree chopping career is behind you now, and you're in yeah, LA. Yeah, but I, you know, when I was when I was real young, I wanted to play football, so I ate a lot of potatoes so I could gain some weight. And you never gained a pound. And you know, I, I think I've <laughs> lost about an inch and a half since I've gotten older. I've gotten shorter, and I keep getting shorter. It seems like my you my wife both. tells tells me, well, you're very, you know, you're tall, uh, and I used to always equate. Uh, a person's age with their height. I used to think, oh, well, that's an adult because they're they're tall. And I think of myself as a kid because I'm so short. Anyway, uh... The criminal guy who was the modeling agency, what, how did that play out? Well, he, he introduces me to this person that wants to, that does these, uh, these photographs and they said, you know, look, Joe, rub this oil on you and it starts out real, you know... Really easy, you know. It's nothing, nothing that's too frightening to a person that's, you know, being first introduced to it. It's just, you know, take your clothes off and stand over there and nude. Yeah. And for you, did you feel that in that world you had a nose for people you could trust and not trust? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right so when the guy says oil up and stand over there naked, you knew you were cool. Yeah, no nothing's gonna move gonna, on you. nothing was going to happen there. Yeah. Did you find it weird? Yeah, I thought it was real weird, but I was going to get $50, a whole yeah. $50. That was a lot of money back then, yeah. you know, and I thought, wow, 
$50 for standing there. So, yeah, Joe, make, put your arm up like, like you're making a muscle, Joe, you know? And shortly after that, I have a fight with the guy that introduced me to this, the modeling people, because he had this scam that he wanted to do. He wanted to blackmail somebody. He wanted me to do something. And I said, I ain't doing that. And all sorts of stupid shit, you know. Wow. So I got angry, and he got he got violent. He was an ex-con that was, you know, going to show his toughness. He was, was he tough? Not to me. Right. You know? Okay. Anyway, he broke a bottle to come at me, and I knocked the bottle out of his hand. It went on the ground and broke. And uh, he... Uh, you did a little yeah. dance with him. Yeah, he fell on the glass and got all cut up, you know. Well, well actually, I, I threw him on the glass, <laughs> and he got all cut up. No, no, he fell on the glass. Yeah, and You and were holding so, him down. You were trying to help him. He tried to press charges against you? Yeah, he tried to do all this nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, we went to court, and they reached my father and say, you know, you, your son's out here. And you, oh, you need to send him back, you know, put him on a plane, and I'll send you the money. Where'd you live when you got to New York? Well, I stayed with them for a week and then went out on my own again. What was the plan when you were back in New York well, to pick oh, up the I, modeling thing again? Did you say this is good money? Well, I, I never thought about it, about the modeling thing. You know, it wasn't something that I, I knew anybody. I, I had a couple of friends in New York that introduced me to other people. And, and then one day one of these friends uh, said, hey, I know this person that's... Uh, making these Campbell's soup can, you know, makes the Campbell's soup. And I was thinking we were going to eat some soup, which I was all for. You're going to go to the Campbell's soup factory? Yeah, whatever. In Pennsylvania. I had no idea where it was. You're going to take a picture of you oiled up? He's going well, to give you a case of there, soup. Well, there's somebody sitting behind a, a camera Shit. reading a newspaper. So I couldn't see who it was or what it was, you know. But they wanted to introduce me to this Campbell's soup Andy Warhol guy that I had, you know, didn't know who Andy Warhol was or, you know, before I met them, I, I had married uh, a young lady, my first, my first wife. How old were you? Seventeen? Uh, no, I had to be 18 then. Okay. So, but it was... Uh, Why'd you get married when you were 18? Seems like freedom is a premium for you. Why'd you get married? My father was dating her mother and... Uh, my father wanted to, she got herself pregnant. My father said, you know, you should take, we should take this person and he, he should own up to his responsibility of his kid. You were the father? She no, I wasn't. Oh, you all she got, got okay. pregnant with somebody else. And oh. My father said, we'll take him to court, you know. And, and I, I kept telling my father, you shouldn't do that, man. You shouldn't push her to do that because he's going to come in with a bunch. This is Brooklyn, you know. He's going to come with a bunch of guys saying we all slept with her and nothing's going to ever come Prove back. Prove which one of us is the father, yeah. Yeah, that's back before DNA and all that other shit. Right. Thank God for DNA. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you that— just, You decided to marry her? I decided to marry her and give the kid my name, you know. What kind of work did you do then? I was a, a bookbinder. I went to, I, actually, I was assembly line. I didn't do anything except... In the city? Yep. Yep, in Manhattan. Who, why that job? Because my uncle ran the, ran the shop. It was his business. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was his business, but he, he, ran, he ran the shop. 
So was there a part of you when you're in Jersey and you're bookbinding and you got a 16-year-old bride who's got a kid and we're not quite sure who in the Brooklyn gang is really the father? Do you sit there and go, I miss standing there oiled up in a room uh, naked getting 50 bucks from these guys I don't know. Did you miss that? Yeah. And then you go, and then you go meet the guy who's behind the newspaper who makes the soup, who's going to make you soup for lunch. Yeah. What happened there? He drops the newspaper, and what happens? Obviously, he became very fond of you very quickly. Well, it wasn't him. It was the guy that was standing to the side of the camera and giving all the instructions to everybody, and that was Paul Morrissey. So he's the one that suggested that I be in the film because he, he was this character that asked everything about your life, and I had told him, you know, in junior high, I... I I played on the wrestling team. He says, oh, that's a good idea. We'll have you do that with Undine. You'll, you'll teach him wrestling. So Let's film that. We'll film that. <laughs> what do you describe Morrissey then? Morrissey, real smart, real educated. He, had, uh, he was a Fordham graduate. He was a social worker before uh, in, in New York City where he really saw these... Uh, strange people that he had to, you know, work with. Uh, so he had plenty of great stories, and he, he shot uh, these films uh, that were shot. They were silent films. I saw, I watched a couple of them. They were pretty good films. Uh, were you a moviegoer then? You like movies? Yeah. Oh, I was a you moviegoer. Like movies. Oh, I loved really? movies. Didn't want to be in them. I just liked watching them. But when you watched the movies that Morrissey and or Warhol made, they weren't like movies you saw in the theater. Well, when I, yeah, I thought they were a joke. I thought they, well, well, when we were shooting this one thing, the soup day, they they asked me to be in the thing, and I shot this small scene, and they came over to me after we were done, and uh, they asked me to sign a release. I said... You're not going to, this is just for fun. Nobody's going to ever see this. This is This is just, I thought, just like a home movie. I didn't think they were going to, you know, ever show this anywhere. I thought it was a joke. Because what was happening there was, you know, pretty silly. And it wasn't, you know, anything I ever saw in a theater. It was unfamiliar. Yeah. yeah, really. I signed the release thinking it would never be released. And, and then later on they called me and... Uh, asked if I would uh, allow them to photograph me for the advertising of this film that they, you know, they shot with me. First Which they, film? Before, the, this movie that was supposed to be a 24-hour movie that turned into Loves of Undine. They cut it into a small... That was your first movie? That was my first movie with them. But before that was ever released, they had called me up, Andy did, to ask me to be in another movie. And then he put Paul on the phone, who told me, yeah, Joe, we're, we're, we're going out to Arizona to shoot a, a Western. Would you like to be in the Western? I said, sure. <laughs> That'd be great. I said, but you got to pay me what I, what I make at the bookbinding place because I can't take off. I'm, I'm married now. I got to take care of my <laughs> all this bullshit. Pay Did they pay you? Yeah. About what I was making. They paid you exactly what you made at the bookbinding Probably, place. yeah. Out of nickel more than that. They were cheap. They were always cheap. They didn't want to pay somebody too much, and then somebody else asked for the same thing. You know. Isn't it amazing? You sit in a room uh, back in 1967 with a bunch of people who later on 
the soup can guy would sell his paintings for tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. He becomes one of the richest artists in history. Did you have an artistic sensibility where you thought that these guys were, or you just, as you said, it was just unfamiliar and silly? Well, in the beginning, you know, it all wasn't for me and, and Andy's art. You know, we all participated in, in making the Andy art. They had said, you know, after we had shot the cowboy movie and we came back, I thought that was it, go back to bookbinding. And, you know, I called uh, Paul, asked about the Western, and uh, he had told me that he had a job for me at the factory. And I said, okay, you know, I'd be happy to give up what I was doing, you know, do something there. And uh, I went down to the factory, and that was the day that Andy was shot when I showed up to the factory to work there. Coming up, more on Joe D'Alessandro's relationship with Andy Warhol and why he eventually stopped working with him. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talked to Eric Shiner, director of the Andy Warhol Museum, on how the shooting affected Andy and his work. It was a huge wake-up call, and he really did start to think about business in a much more serious way. Immortality. Immortality. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Paul Morrissey trilogy is made up of three films, Flesh, Trash, and Heat. Directed by Morrissey and produced by Andy Warhol, they depict the seamy side of the late 60s and early 70s. My guest today, Joe D'Alessandro, starred in all of them. Today, Joe lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Kim, and manages an apartment building. Back then, Joe was quick to anger, but also had a devil-may-care attitude. He needed someone to look out for him. Paul took on that role. Me and Paul were real close, and and Paul became like my mentor. He was well-educated, and he... He knew the movie industry, he knew the movies and the actors and the, and the directors, and he knew all about the business. And, and you know, there was a, a big part of uh, the making of these silly little films that was business. There were, you know, there were all these, uh, the films that we had to ship off to universities because we had a, they had a, a big following throughout the world. The, the films themselves, I guess they were thought of as you know, art or the introduction of a, uh, of underground filmmaking to, to people, you know, the, they had that kind of thing, I, I would think, over in, in Paris and in, in France and Italy where they made these kind of film noir type things or they made these uh, avant-garde type movies. And Paul would say, uh, you know, Whenever I had something against the movies, he would say, you know, these movies will one day be in the museums. So don't be upset with this scene, you know. They're not not the same as something, you know, sleazy or anything like that. This is is art, you know. And he would always... and And you needed to be sold on that again and again? Yeah, he would do it for every time he would ask me to take off a piece of clothing in the film. Uh, Was he after you? No, no, no. Paul was a strictly an asexual type guy. <laughs> you know, he, I never knew him to have sex with understand. anybody. I mean, not that that matters, but I mean, I'm just curious because... No, there are other people that came on to me, you know, over the years. I would imagine it was a nonstop thing. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was not, not, he was never one of them. And it, but when you're there in that world, I mean, where's the love in your life when you're working with them? Was it just the love of being counted as one of them as an important part of this family? Did you fall in love with people that you met? Did you fall in love with men and women that you met? Or like, where, where do you become emotionally mature during this? Because I would imagine you must have had hundreds and hundreds of opportunities. I imagine every woman in Hollywood came in there and said, here's my phone number. I mean, they all at least want to have dinner with you. Yeah, it was kind of nice, whatever. Uh, Did you fall in love then? No, no. What, what happened was... Uh, <laughs> they take me they take me to the parties and the dinner parties there would be drinking going on and of course I'd want to drink and Paul would later on tell me that uh, he noticed that I drank you know too much and I didn't stop well, he was your coach yeah and he said uh, when I when we go out to these events you can't drink you, you drink yeah I can't have you puffy tomorrow yeah. he didn't care about puffy, but he would also try to control what I ate and shit, you know. I say, but Paul, you eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'm not going to eat the crap that you eat, you know. He had a lot of instructions for me to, to be a, a better person. He 
He there's a little Pygmalion in the relationship. Yeah, he would he would upset me, and then when I get upset and want to knock his teeth out, he would uh, He'd yell action. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much. I would everything everything with Morris. He sounds like it was an effect for filmmaking. Pretty much, uh, he he would make me upset to just make me get past that where I wouldn't. He was always afraid I was going to hit a reporter or something like that. So he did this stuff to push my buttons, and uh, he would run and hide behind a door, and I would crash through the door, and he'd go behind another one, and I'd get to that one. And by the time I got to the second door, I realized that you know I have to fix these fucking doors, you know. So this is not a not a smart thing to do. Better to just talk. And so I'd calm down and say, okay, I understand now. Let's let's talk about this. He was like a manager, too. Yeah. Mainly, I worked for them. I, I, I did these. After, when Andy got shot, Paul decided that we had all this raw stock of film there and that we were going to go out and and he was going to do a film without Andy there, you know. Which Morrissey made many films without Andy, right? Yeah. Andy would come and visit, but he wasn't, you know. He was busy doing lithos. Yeah, yeah, these aren't. At, at some point, you're not just in the family there with Paul and Andy and the photography and the films. You become a celebrity in your own right, and you're photographed for Rolling Stone, and you're photographed by Scavulo. And when you step outside that home, and other people want to kind of get into the whole iconography business with you and photograph you, were you just as comfortable with them? Did you feel as protected as you with them? Whenever I do these shoots with Scavulo or any of the other people... Paul was there or Andy was there. They were doing a shoot, too. It wasn't I went down there on my own, right. you know. I was introduced to these people. And it Paul was, a was your uncle everywhere. Yeah, it was, a, it was a session that was connected with the, the Andy Warhol films. So they were, either, they were doing a story on Andy. To promote and, their product. Yeah, and I, I just happened to be the pretty boy that uh, they did a couple of extra shots with, you know, because I photographed well. I don't know. Uh, you photographed very well. <laughs> you photographed quite well. Well, Paul back then he used to he used to get photographed too, and he he, he had this his one side that he would always do, and he said that this is the only side I can be photographed by, you know. I, okay, Paul. Yeah. Now, now, what about what about drugs and alcohol in your life then? None. 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 Well, see, you know, if I couldn't drink socially with these people out there because Paul said I drank too much, I, I wasn't a person that was going to go home and drink by myself and or in my house. I was never a guy that, you know, came back after work and, and said, again, i got to have a drink or, or, you know, got off from the job for the weekend and said, let me get a six-pack or a 12-pack. You know, I didn't do that. It wasn't that kind of drinker. So when I, when I got done with... Uh, my Warhol days, uh, and we did our last two films together. What year was Italy. that? Oh, it's got to be 70, 71. That was, I guess, the end, you know. Why was it the end? I didn't want to work with them anymore because now I came to understand that, you know, I did these movies with them, and they, they were getting a lot of play, and people were recognizing. Paul always, as my mentor told me, you can't fall into this thing with the, the reporters of, you know, what they say good about you, because then you got to believe what they say bad about yeah. you. And, you didn't want to be in the Mickey Mouse Club. Then. Yeah, so uh, I didn't go around saying, I'm a superstar, you know. I, I didn't believe in any of that. It was all nonsense still to me. 
Uh, it was fun doing the movies, and we had a good time with it. And Paul would push me, you know, to do, you know, a little more than I would want to do, felt comfortable with, and I tried to get comfortable with it all because, uh, you know, he said it was necessary for the film and telling the story. And a lot of the stories that we, we told were, you know, things that I shared about my life, you know, from the the hustling with flesh to the... You know, what, no, the, what do you mean? Things well, you shared the, about your life? You know, you, yes, you how much you, I participated in, in the story with, with you know, making other films. With, the thing is, I told Paul, you know, Paul was interested in, in knowing all about me, so I told him parts of my life, you know... Um, and you were a hustler? In a kind of way, right. but no, not the kind that, you know, everybody sees, not the kind I portrayed in, in the movie. Right. I knew when people, you know, were interested in me and, and and I'd get people to do more for me by just, you know, leading showing up and, yeah, leading them on to, sure. to believing there was something down the road. Right. And, uh, of but course, that, you that, said, I got to go make a phone call. You were gone. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, That's a and, good and, trick, but I like that. that whole thing, you know, got me in trouble a couple of times, you know, so... It wasn't stuff that I felt comfortable with, so I was real happy when I met the Warhol people and was on my own. What's the first movie you make that's not with Warhol? It's a, a thing over in uh, Puerto Rico we shoot called The Gardener. Paul wanted me to do a real movie, uh, work with a real crew, and, and you know so that I would know the difference between— you know. And who directed that? A guy named Jim Kay. The, Pretty sure that's his name, Jim Kay. Um, what kind of part did you play? Uh, well, I played the gardener, the lead role, and uh, there was the actress was the girl who was in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? Poitier's wife in the film, yeah. Yeah, she was. Uh, she didn't make a lot of films, but uh, she was in this, and uh, I was this gardener that. Uh, basically controlled the plants and I turned into a tree at the end. Yeah. So you're on familiar territory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, a, you know, it was a, a fun film to make. What was it like for you to to make a film, like you show up on a set and they go, we got to shoot five or six pages today. It just felt, gotta... Everything that we did always felt, felt so natural to me. You know, it was real easy, came to me. It wasn't something that I felt I had to be taught, you know. Anyway, so we we shot this film down in Puerto Rico. I think it took a, a month, but what I came to understand is, I got I think I got paid uh, thirty thousand dollars, twenty eight or twenty nine thousand dollars for this film. Now I'd never been yeah. paid big You're bucks. You're a millionaire from, now. Yeah, from yeah. from Andy, never made nothing. You're moving now, to Paris now. Now I made these all this money and I just felt like... Did that make you more fuck you to Andy and those guys? Pretty much, because the next thing I had to do after I did this film, I finished this film, and I had my wife with me, I had my mother-in-law there. Is this still is my, your first wife? This is my second wife. <laughs> okay, we skipped over the part. Where, where'd you meet her? In New York, in Manhattan. We, while you were in the Warhol situation? Yeah, yeah. And you fell in love with her? Well... It was one of those things Paul said, you got to do the right thing. Oh, she was uh, mommy. Yeah. Okay. 
You're old school, man. Says, You're old yeah, school. I she, love that. She, Pizza shop, marry the girl. My, you're like out of a Springsteen song. And she knew sake. I was going through this thing with my first wife where I was trying to, you know, get a certain amount of visitation with my son. And um, so she she knew I didn't want to go out and have any more, you know, kids because I already had, you know. A tough situation. Yeah, going on. And she said it was an accident, but it just seemed like it was too contrived to be an accident, you know. Uh, I wanted, you know, she she would come and, and stay with me and go out and buy, you know, uh, curtains for the windows and stuff. And, you know, making the, which I didn't give a shit about, but, you know, she was making my little apartment there into a home. How did Serge Gainsborough find you? A serious well, filmmaker? Well, remember, now, I, now I'm living in Italy. I've been making movies for a while. I made three films a year for close to 10 years over there. I went over there and made The Frankenstein and Dracula, and, and the last two films I made were Warhol, because after I finished The Gardener, I uh, had these two films signed to do with uh, Paul over in the... What they did is they made a contract up with Ponte to have these films made. Carlo Ponti. Yeah, Carlo Sophia's Ponte. Husband. Yeah, yeah, and Andy Brownsburg. They they were the producers, and they, they wanted Andy to be, you know, his name to be connected to the films, and Paul as the director, and they wanted me to be their, the, the star. Uh, that's how it read. Because, you know, they saw that we had made these other films, the trilogy had been made, and they were doing really well. I mean, people aren't stupid. We, we, me and Paul were going over to Europe for a while now every year to, to sell one of these films. And what they would do is they would sell flesh and they would package with that movie Bike Boy and I Am Man. So Andy would sell these other films, you know, with the one movie that they wanted. Uh, package. Yeah, package deal. So they always said that, you know, the the film that they they really promoted when it was opening over there was the film that I was in. They weren't promoting in the same in the same way, Bike Boy or I Am In, you know. And I just kind of felt like you know, Paul had made this deal with me that I would get a percentage of uh, of the producers of their share, Andy and Paul's share, two and a half percent from Paul and two and a half percent from Andy. Which later on when Paul was given all the films. It became 5% I was supposed to get from Paul. And over the years, I, you know, never saw any of it. Who's the best director you ever worked with? I mean, I don't say the best, but who's one that you sat there and go, man, I really dig doing this. I like shooting scenes with this guy or this woman. Who'd you really dig? Serge Gainsbourg. You did. Describe that. Oh, God. Well, there was... A small role that Gerard de Padour played in the film, he was doing a Marco Ferrari film in Italy, and he would fly up from Italy to be in this uh, this Je t'aime uh, with Serge. And we were all drinkers back then. We'd drink all day, and Serge was a big drinker. But it didn't interfere with our work. Uh, uh, we all worked real hard. I would always ask, you know, Serge, if he wanted me to 
do some of the lines in French, and he would say, no, 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 Joe, when you when you try to speak French, your whole face contorts. I don't want that. that. <laughs> I want you, don't. Joe. Yeah, yeah, just do English. And uh, so this was um, a real treat uh, to be working in a film where my 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 co-star Jane is is uh, married to my director, and they have a a beautiful marriage. And they and I and I gotta pretend that this is my you know that I'm attracted and this is my lover. It's supposed to be a real sexy movie, and it and it turns out that way. It's kind of real bizarre. You liked the film when it came out. Yeah, you I did. Liked, I liked what I did. Yeah. Yeah. What was happening to your own sexuality when you were doing these films? Uh, by that time, I, I just, uh, I just thought I was marvelous. You know, here's how I here's how I rate my sexuality. You know, my me and my brother lived together, and we had we had beds that were side by side. And one day, my brother is having sex while I'm in the upper bed pretending to be asleep and he's going on for on and on and about 45 50 minutes later he finishes up and so the next morning when we really get up and I I go you know Bobby you're doing if it if it takes more than 15 seconds you're doing it all wrong because oh, I was the 15 second man and I came to find out many years later that my brother was doing all my early girlfriends he would you know when I He'd be saying, out. you're with the wrong D'Alessandro. <laughs> exactly. He said, you know, my brother may be the the one that's got the career in the movies that you're trying to, to be with, but... We can put his want. poster on the wall while you bang me, <laughs> if that's what you prefer. Now, now, now at the same time, because this is a weird non-secretive, but I've always... I've, this kind of stuff is always so weird to me, because, I mean, I love music, and I even love, you know, the rock and roll music of my generation, you know, uh, when I was young. I don't listen to much popular music now, actually. It kind of puts me off, but... but uh, So that's you on the cover of Sticky Fingers, they say. Is that correct? Yeah. That is you. Yeah. So wasn't it funny to me? I mean, this is, a, this is a, admittedly a really dumb thing to say, but I can't help it. You have the f- most famous crotch shot in history, in cultural history. Did they give you any money for that? No, it had nothing to do with me, them selecting. <laughs> what it was was Andy was asked Jesus to give Christ. them. But it didn't. It had Did nothing to do. He wanted an image from yeah. Andy. Yeah, and, and he just, you know, gave them a, a bunch of them, and they selected the one that I recognize as my belt and my, you know, my and your buttocks. personality. Yeah, yeah. It, it is me. And then I hear that Rolling Stone finally admits that it's me, yeah. too. So That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it only took, I don't know, 100 years. But, uh, I'm glad we could set the records here on National Public Radio. That's your, uh, that's your Florida peninsula down there. Yeah. Now, the other thing is that um, uh, how did Coppola find you? Well, see, that's, uh, that's, you know, back when I had done this trilogy with Paul, um, people were interested in working with me. You know, they thought, he's a pretty interesting character. Let's see. And see what he can do. But Andy would say to people, you know, I think he does drugs. And Paul would tell people that would ask about me, I don't think he can do a script. I don't think he can. And I thought, how fucking insane this is. You know, these are the people that are, 
you know, supposed to be in my corner. And they're not saying anything wonderful about me. They're saying a bunch of crap, you know. So this is this is basically before we went off to to Italy to do the the film. So when that came back to me, I said, you know, these people aren't in my corner. I don't I don't want to do any more work with them. I'm through. But Coppola came around when he was getting ready to do The Godfather for the first time, you know. Uh, there was mention, you know, maybe we should see this new uh, underground person. But like I said, you know, nobody wanted to get involved with somebody who has no, you know, no training or anything like that. And it's, it's told by the person that's made the films with him that they don't believe that he could do a script. So when we went to to do... Frankenstein and Dracula when I finally agreed that, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll do these things if you, you pay me right and give me that percentage that I asked for. And there must be a script. Any line that I say in your film has to be written for me. I'm not going to do one bit of improvisation, you know. It all has to be written up scripted. front. Scripted. Yeah, scripted and given to me. And so every day they wrote my role. Uh, and pretty much everybody that was in the film, their their stuff was written, you know. Um, so, so Coppola swings around later for you to do Cotton Club. Yeah, it was just a kind of afterthought. Let's put, you know, let's meet, I think, Fred Ruse, who was, you know, his... Producer. Yeah, he... They called me and to just meet with me, and, and they said, we're, we're going to have you read a couple of lines first, you know, and... I didn't even meet Francis that day, or he might have been there. Now, you go on and you make other films, and you do TV, and you're working with Richard Pryor, and you're working with uh, yeah, uh, Bruce hoped, Willis and I Soderbergh. Hoped, you know, Bruce Willis had done a Die Hard, and I hoped, you know, here I get to work with Blake Edwards and, and Richard Pryor. Sunset with Bruce. Sunset and Jim Garner, and, and I thought... It's got to be a success, you know, because all, you know, all it takes is you're hitting it in a, in a film that's a success, and then you just keep moving on to those type of films. You know, they don't, they don't make you, you know, it helps. go beg for the pennies. Anyway, never turned out for me. You know, now, recently, um, you got this Teddy Award. Yeah. From, uh, in 2009 for LGBT. Is that something that's a cause that's important to you? Nothing's ever important to me. It's right. just, it's just. I'm, Why do you think they chose you? I don't know. You know, I never figure. I guess because I have a body of work that you know they see that sexual liberation. Yeah, and, I've done a lot of things, and I was one of the first. You know, uh, I was there before a lot of. Has marriage you know, equality, you know, uh, gay yeah. rights, been a big thing to you? Yeah, all of that, uh, and you know the. The fact that me and Kim, we, we get ourselves involved, you know, maybe I don't have a, a lot of money, but we get ourselves involved with taking care of the homeless right now. Um, you know, we, we do all of this uh, with, my, with my fans participating in it, too. And, but Kim is the one that does the, the going out in the street and interacting with them. Uh, She's pretty tough, this wife of yours you have. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I keep... Yeah. Telling her it can be dangerous, but she yeah. does some crazy stuff. She's a good partner. Yeah, 
she's she's mean. She's mean. In fact, the way the reason I chose her in my life, we we used to go to this program together, and and I, she walked into the meeting, and she had these lips that went all the way down here to her chin, and I said, nobody can be that angry. She just can't be that angry, and I said, but she's the girl for me. <laughs> and uh, be me the angriest girl in this yeah. meeting. Yeah. Where are your sons now? Uh, one's in Brooklyn and Doing one's what? in... Doing uh, The Brooklyn one? Uh, I think he's got an army for a family. Uh, Mikey, he's... Um, he's always done hard labor. He's a, he's a tough man. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and your other son? Uh, Joe Jr., Please tell me he has a pizza place no, in Floral no, no, Park. No, 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 But he has a lovely home in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania? Did she shake her head she, yes? Yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. She's shaking yes. Okay, yeah, Pennsylvania. He has a house, and he's separated from his wife, and he has a son from the marriage that he's kept and uh, he's raised. My hat's off to him because he's done something that his, his own father was incapable of doing. And uh, he's doing a real good job of it, you know. Have you found love in your life? Uh, mm, I, I, as much as you can love the, the angriest woman I, in the meeting, yeah, with the mouth turned down. Well, you know, like, she's been so long in my life that, you know, I've always loved and cared about her, you know. But she can be so mean. I mean, this morning she was ready to kill me again. She, she came in to, to do the paperwork for me because I had to... I had to take a, a bath and a shave for this uh, sitting down, even though there's no camera here, so I don't know why I had to shave or get cleaned up. Could have came in a dirty you look pretty shirt. Good. You look pretty good. You know? Anyway, uh, so I got ready for this, and, and she did my paperwork this morning and got mad because it didn't, you know, there was money missing, and, you know. You are this icon. I mean, you are, like, you are a piece of art. Mm-hmm. You are a work of art, yeah. and you and, and and all these people made money off you, and you're this work of art, and you're like, you're like this male sexual ideal, beyond James Dean, beyond Brad Pitt, beyond any of these people, all of them got thing, but you're the greatest looking guy that ever lived because you chopped the trees down at the fucking detention center and then escaped and lived in the woods. That's mm-hmm. the guy in that picture <laughs> did that. Yeah, you are such a strange bird. You're a really odd bird. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for you for doing this show. I'm very, very grateful yeah, for you for doing you. this, man. Thank fun. you for taking the time. Director John Waters says Joe D'Alessandro, quote, forever changed male sexuality in cinema, unquote. Knowing D'Alessandro, he didn't have to try that hard to do it. After I talked with Joe in Los Angeles, I called him up. He wanted to talk more about his relationship with the LGBT community. And your relationship with that community began where and how? I mean, I mean, the obvious question is, are you L, G, B, or T? <laughs> well, I, I don't, I'm not any of those things, I don't think. No. Uh, You're little Joe. I'm little Joe, basically. <laughs> you know, I'm a kind of blank canvas, which, you know, at least all my fans and people to project their fantasies and desires on, you know. Um, like I had a, I had a friend here 
that I watched uh, TV with, you know, on a regular basis, you know, the the Game of Thrones. We were involved in watching that series, and he would come over on, on a Sunday night. He was a gay friend for, you know, many years, and, and then one day, <laughs> oh, I don't know, about six months ago, he decided that... Uh, I shouldn't be married to my wife. That I, that I'm gay, and that uh, <laughs> that we should uh, live together. The whole thing is, you know, it, I've never made any kind of uh, declaration. Yeah, that he, he that I'm open for uh, or looking for a, a relationship with somebody other than my wife and uh well i must say my brief encounter watching tv and to let's move in together is like so weird <laughs> to me <laughs> well my my i must say my brief encounter with your wife leads me to think that when he says you should leave your wife and go live with him and go marry him that kim might say he's all yours you can have him yep exactly <laughs> yeah i got i got to take the mail from the mailman hold on one second <laughs> We can't, you can't stage that. That's perfect. Sorry about that, Alec. No, Joe, it's okay. While you just grab the mail, could you hold on a second? I got to go walk yeah. my dog. Can you hold on? <laughs> go ahead. Well, I mean, obviously you've had a sensitivity and you've had an openness to this from day one when you first started working with uh, all those guys, you know, Morrissey and, and, and Andy and people you made films with because that was a very kind of sexually uh, uh, you know, open-minded crowd. And uh, are there any groups in particular that you ha- have? Well, a- you know, when I was when I was a real young kid, uh, when I was doing the the car thieving stuff and thought of myself as a tough guy, I, I would have wound up in, in prison uh, or or you know for the rest of my life probably because I would have wound up killing somebody because I was just so violent. And uh, when I met the Warhol people, they brought me you know and some, a few gay friends. They calmed me down. They made me realize that I didn't have to beat people up when I saw them all the time. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to go off on something that somebody says to me. Yeah. And it, it, it took a little while, but, it, you know, it finally, I, I finally understood it. Right. So. Are there any organizations in particular that you've worked with closely or that you... Well, for many years I was involved with AA from... For many, many years. What about LGBT groups? Or have you been involved with GLAD or no, no, GMHC? I don't, I, don't, or? I don't go out to, to anything to do with sexuality. I don't, you know, right now, there's nothing sexual about me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I don't have a problem with my sexuality. Right. You know, right. You, know well, you get to a certain age. You know, I always used to think when I was a younger man and I couldn't get the thought of sex out of my head... Uh, that that would never that obsession would never go away, and uh, we used to have a meeting with my sponsor once a week, and we had a one of our members. Uh, he didn't have that obsession of mind, and, and the other members uh, that were coming to the meeting, we all we all kind of wondered why, 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 and then we come to find out, of course, that he's HIV positive, and that's pretty much why he was able to give it up. But uh, I never thought the 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 obsessive you know, obsessiveness about sex would ever go away. And when it, when one day it did, I was just, you know, so happy, you know, that my mind didn't have, have to think about sex, you know, every 15 or 30 seconds. So 
that was a, yeah. you know, gay, freed me up for cartoons. You know, it kind of bores it bores me when I when I see because you know, I did all the sexual things in in the, in the films and stuff. So when I see other people doing it, it's nothing that turns me on in any way. So it, you know, I'd rather watch something else. I would rather watch the cowboy on a horse or or the the spaceman flying with his space shoes or something. You know, something that's total fantasy. Right. You know, you are someone who just has such a striking presence. You know, you're physical power, your masculinity, your good looks and everything. And when you look back, do you like that guy? Do you look at that guy and go, yeah, he was well, doing the best he could? I don't see could. the guy as me. That's what's so cool about it. When I see that guy, that that could be, you know, I think the guy that I see is very cool, but I don't see it as me, the, the way I live my life and everything. I never actually talk about uh, acting or films with anybody here where I, you know, now reside in and do my little life thing here. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's cool that I, I had a chance to do, do film and, and, and I love the, I love working at it. It's a, a real fun thing, but the guy that is in front of the camera is not the same guy that I walk around with every day. He's somebody else. I don't know how I, how I do it. It's just, The person that photographs me either has a different eye than I do, because when I look in the mirror, I don't see that same person. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.